Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on all things ophthalmology brought to you by Mayo Clinic. I'm your host, Dr. Andrea Tooley. And I'm Dr. Eric Bothan. We're here to bring you the latest and greatest in ophthalmology, medicine, and more. Dr. Andrew Barkmeyer is a vitreoretinal surgeon and serves as the residency program director here at Mayo Clinic. He's a past Mayo Clinic program director of the year and ophthalmology teacher of the year award recipient. Dr. Barkmeyer sits on the executive committee for the DRCR Retina Network, is a member of the Macula Society and the Retina Society. He's heavily involved in clinical research involving diabetic retinopathy, retinal vascular disease, telemedicine, healthcare delivery, and complex vitreoretinal surgery. In today's episode, we will be chatting with Dr. Andrew Barkmeyer about the future of ophthalmology education, surgical education, and his research interests. Welcome, Dr. Andrew Barkmeyer. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, and I, we, we've looked forward to this episode, not only just to hear a little bit about your niche in, in our retina subservice and what you do in that regard, but also your important role in leadership for our ophthalmology residency program. Yes, we've been trying to make this episode happen, and it's been so difficult that it's almost comical, and then we finally had it all set and ready to go, and I was on maternity leave. I completely forgot that I was out of town, and Dr. Barkmeyer texted me and said, you ready for the podcast? And I I thought, you have to be kidding me, because we'd already gone through so many dates trying to get it scheduled. So anyways, we're finally here. here. We're so happy to sit down with you, talk about education, talk about retina. It's going to be great. Here in our department, you not only carry your retina shield, but also with education. First, share with us a little bit about why retina and what roles and how your retina practice and what research interests you have, and then share with us why education? What, What sparked you to get into resident education? Sure. So retina was easy. I mean, I loved all parts of ophthalmology. It's it's just a fantastic specialty. But I remember seeing the first retina surgeries. I saw just the impact, the combination of technology and the patients who really need vision-saving help. It was a really easy sell to me. I, I've loved it from day one. The research opportunities were fantastic. Education-wise, we all have just this sort of pantheon of mentors and and teachers that we've had and you realize the difference that they make in your own educational and patient care and research journeys and I know I wanted to do that I love talking about all the exciting things that we're working on with patients just seeing residents and fellows get excited about different aspects of it I love that as you go through different stages you're always teaching you're always teaching people who you're working with and forming those relationships I knew it's something I wanted to do Once I got to Mayo, I always had an inkling that I wanted to be a residency program director at some point, but the opportunity came up in a time I didn't entirely expect it, but just ran with it, and it's been absolutely a blast. Yeah, you were really early in your career when you started the program director role, and I feel that as the associate program director, same, early in my career, and I feel like it's challenging to balance building an oculoplastics practice and the education component. I think it's the same with retina, super busy surgically, difficult specialty. So how do you balance being really young and early in your career, learning how to be a PD, and then also building that vitro-retinal surgery practice? Yeah, it goes back to there are different peaks and really busy times. There's a flow to the education season. There are really busy times with interviews and with the turnover from year to year. In the the times where it's a little bit less hectic, I dive into my retina research and practice. 
and it's actually kind of fun that way because there's always something a little bit different going on that you're completely absorbed in. I think if you try to do everything all the time, it's a little bit less efficient than diving into certain aspects of your professional world when they're coming up. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting to think about how our years have seasons. Certainly our careers have seasons. For sure. In residency training, you advise residents in terms of how much they should bite off and chew. You are one of these individuals, Dr. Bachmeyer, that has bitten off a lot and has succeeds at a lot of things. Mm-hmm. It is a fascinating question because at each stage in our career, I've looked back and wonder, I got a little heavily involved maybe with institutional administrative roles or with national roles and research slips back. Other times in a career, research ends up being more of a priority in those service roles change. How do you advise residents when they are fresh out of residency in their new academic roles, let's say, how do you share with them about what to bite off and when in a career? That's a great question. It's a little bit different for everyone. One of the keys is, is if there's something that's exciting to you or something that you can learn from and grow from, even if you're a little bit uncomfortable, go for it. Just take it on. Make sure you do a good job at everything that you do as you move along you have to start figuring out how to say no to the things that are not your top priority but while keeping the relationships while keeping future opportunities open because you can't overextend yourself but you don't want to miss out on opportunities that i mean there's no perfect answer to that but you really want to empower people to pick and choose and sort of identify what to really dive into at different points yeah. You've given me that advice before, and I think it's so true that to make sure you're able to do a good job at something, because especially when we're young and early in our career, we want to say yes to everything, we want to do everything, and that's the time when you're presented with so many opportunities. Sure. And so you feel like you have to, otherwise you're going to miss it. And I remember you telling me, of course you want to do it. Do you think you have the bandwidth to do a good job? Because if you say yes, you have to crush it. You have to do a good job. Absolutely. And you know, there's some opportunities where you really can't let the ball drop. You have to know that you can actually do a good job. And I've had to think to myself, man, I would love to do this, but I don't think I would be able to really do a great job at it. And that's helped me say no, but that's really good advice. And I feel like that's not common advice. I've only heard that from you. One of the other keys is upfront, you can just ask some questions. So this sounds like a fantastic opportunity. Help me understand, I wanna do a great job at this. Mm -hmm. Help me understand what this looks like for a timeline and what's really involved. And people will see that interest and you can say, I wanna do a fantastic job at this. And if you are asking questions up front, the last thing you want to do is commit to something before you know what's really entails. The process of how multifaceted our careers are. Mm-hmm. We talked about physician well-being and how we juggle things differently. And I think historically, many times, and especially in academic medical centers, people want to crank research out early, do this early, and then mm-hmm. get into leadership roles later in your career. It's just refreshing to think about how there isn't a blueprint for any one person, whether it's in a multifaceted way, starting a family early, starting a family late, being in administrative roles early versus late, research likewise. It's just neat to see how in individual careers, you two are models of fairly early in your career being in very prominent leadership roles, in this case in education, and you know killing it, and also <laughs> having a meaningful role in your subspecialties and, and on a national level. I, in that perspective, let's transition then and talk about in 
medical education and in residency training, mm-hmm. when you look back over the last years, say 10 years of how education on ophthalmology residency program has either stayed the same or changed, what's your perspective on that and how much change have you seen and what do you see coming? Yeah, it's a great question. It's really an exciting time right now because we have all of these multimedia capabilities. The technology is fantastic. And now the content is really catching up to some of the capabilities with respect to ophthalmology. So surgical videos and just multimedia content for all of the medical aspects of ophthalmology. And it's out there on the internet. Programs are increasing their involvement with with some of these new technologies and trying to work it into our prior understandings of how we do didactics, how we do case conferences, how we do surgical teaching. You know, in ophthalmology, we're really lucky that our surgeries are, by and large, very easy to record and, you know, learn from each other. And that's really one of the key in these surgical specialties. You don't want to learn everything on your own with certain types of struggles. You, we want to learn together and just keep the fantastic patient care as we are growing as surgeons. You've been a huge champion for resident surgical education. I know just within the past couple years, you've been super focused on building wet labs and new opportunities for teaching surgical didactics too for residents. Talk about the role of practice, wet labs, where you see all that going in terms of teaching residents surgery. Yeah, it's exciting. Here here at Mayo specifically, we have this new interdisciplinary multi-scope wet lab right now that has been built over the past year, and we're transitioning some of our surgical teaching to that new facility that opens up a lot of possibilities with different group practice and different ratios of faculty to trainees and working fellows in. There are so many ways to practice surgery The most important thing is that you just do it. You practice. You practice on your own. You work one-on-one with your faculty, and we set up some of those one-on-one sessions. Sometimes group sessions work better. Sometimes it's low-fidelity work, like you're suturing chicken skin or you're Hmm. practicing suturing on your own. But sometimes we have some really unique resources here where some of the one-on-one practice can be with really high fidelity, like cadaver eyes and high-tech one-on-one teaching. And that we've got surgical simulators and just working all of those together into some sort of coherent curriculum. You don't want every resident to sort of reinvent the wheel on that, but the most important thing is just that you invest. You just invest in your own surgical training and practice and you want to be able to thrive once you are doing actual surgery for you, for your faculty, for most importantly, for your patients. Yeah, I think the future of surgical education is so exciting. From an oculoplastic standpoint, we're seeing all this new AI simulated anatomy stuff. It reminds me of the Magic School Bus Mm -hmm. episodes. Did you guys ever watch the Magic School Bus where the school bus would take you inside the body and you'd go down the blood vessels and like see the red blood cells flying by you or whatever? They have these new simulators that put you in the orbit and then you can look around and and be completely within the anatomy and see the spatial organization. And I don't know if they have that for intraocular stuff too, but it's just like talking about the multimedia opportunities besides some of just the hands-on stuff. That really excites me too. That's great. 
as a retina surgeon, if I'm in the orbit, <laughs> that's, that's, that's that. a little bit more of a horror movie. Right, but, but it, even being inside the eye would be cool because you could really understand the anatomy in a, in a new way. And intraocular sure. anatomy is really complicated. I still yep. can't find the retina. <laughs> <laughs> it's and fascinating to think about the opportunities, as you're saying, for a training. I remember a time when the concept of a cataract simulation ability software Mm -hmm. with a tangible fingertip feel of what surgery would be um, implemented Mm -hmm. through and with was an impressive advancement in our field. Now you can have simulators that peel up your retinal membranes or do sutureless extra cap or now step into the orbit and look around. It is a you know an exciting time and it's phenomenal to see how that integrated program here is you know taking our residency education to a new level. Sure. Some of the transition to be an ophthalmic surgeon involves learning to work through a microscope, learning to use your hands while you're not looking at them directly. You're looking through a microscope. We have multiple foot pedals and learning how to work in a small confined space inside the eye. Just that muscle memory and practice is really important. And you get little bits of advantages out of all the different ways we practice surgery. And putting that all together is important. No one method of surgical practice is enough, but when you put them all together, it, it really prepares our residents better than we've ever been able to. I'm sure we have listeners who are trainees who are learning surgery and probably getting a lot from this in terms of being inspired to practice and use lots of different tools. But I bet we also have listeners who are educators and it's hard. Teaching surgery is really hard. What have you kind of learned along the way in teaching residents how to operate? You first have to get them involved. You have to get them involved. They're not learning unless they're they're doing, mm-hmm. but you want to set them up for success too. In a vitro-retinal surgical practice, we identify the aspects of the surgery that are, are good for residents who haven't done some of these techniques and that are at their level. Some of the vitro-retinal surgery is really at the fellow level. I have a lot of experience bringing residency graduate up to the level of a vitro-retinal surgeon in my practice. One of the core probably the core surgical procedure within ophthalmology is cataract surgery. And I do cataract surgery, but the cataract surgical educators that we have here are so fantastic. And that's what allows me as a vitreoretinal surgeon to play this sort of education administrative and leadership role, knowing that they are teaching in their own ways in cataract surgery. Yeah, I love that. In addition to just within our own training program, how we've brought surgical training, continue to do so, to new levels of integration within, in how our, our teachers teach, I know that there's been meaningful changes in how the first-year residents integrate and team up with and, and interface with all the different subspecialties of medicine. I was trained in an era where you went off and did an internship year and you got pounded hard on everything from OBGYN <laughs> to ER care. And in that first year, wasn't always about ophthalmology. And then you jumped into ophthalmology, and it was a transition to your new life. Now, it's an integrated internship year. And obviously, there's players, the ACGME and AUPO have mandated this. But share with, with us just what your take on what has happened here at Mayo or even across the country in that year. And how has it really taken training of residents going into ophthalmology to a new level? Yeah, for sure. We're just seeing some of the benefits of it right now. 
We have our first class of integrated interns who are now in the PGY2 year. That transition for them has been fantastic. Ophthalmology has had the same structure of a training program for decades. And like you said, you start with an internship, but it was not prescribed. I mean, you could do family practice, OBGYN. Most people did some sort of internal medicine or transitional year. But as an ophthalmology program, you would always have people coming in with wildly different experiences. The biggest limitation in what we can convey to people and teach is time. To have everyone set up and ready to go for that PGY2 year, and more importantly, to integrate some of our curriculum into the PGY1 year has been fantastic. Now we have residents who come in, they're enculturated within the institution, they know the health record system. One of the real key factors is that they have now worked with faculty all over our amazing institution. They have a peer network and and social network that will be there for the next few years. But they know people all around the institution, and we have actual curriculum where they do oculoplastic surgery as a PGY-1. They do cornea rotation. They do an urgent care clinic. And when they get to the PGY-2 year now, we don't have to bring everyone up to the same level. We can actually just hit the ground running. And I think that the end game of surgical education and clinical education in ophthalmology is really going to be benefited by these changes. I absolutely love our integrated intern year and getting to see the residents come out of that year or even go through that year. I think it really amplifies their ophthalmology education and it's great. But to be honest, I was really surprised when ACGME, AUPO kind of put out this statement that said, by 2022, all programs will have a joint intern year. You can't do it at a different institution. It has to be housed in the same institution. And there's been a lot of debate about the best way to do this intern year. People say, you know, we have to stay in the House of Medicine. We're still MDs. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of value doing ICU and hematology and all these other rotations. And then other people say, well, why would we do that? We should do more ophthalmology. It's an interesting discussion. Sure. Where do you fall on on this opinion for the intern year? I still think we should maintain our role within the House of Medicine. Sure. But how do you balance those naysayers? Well, the ACGME looked at this from um, a variety of different perspectives. Obviously, there are some negatives of integrating or um, creating a four-year program at the same institution, like there's less flexibility for some people who have either personal or family reasons Mm -hmm. where they have a partner who's off cycle from them and they have to move to the same town. So you really have to have a strong educational justification to decrease the flexibility for some of the trainees. But experienced ophthalmologists call back on the things that they've learned throughout their medical training very, very regularly and have a deep appreciation for that. Granted, it's not always the some of the factual things, some of the um, specific practice patterns, but in going into these different areas of medicine, and our internship's fantastic. We've got just amazing specialists in all areas of medicine here at Mayo Clinic, so they get to work with all of them. But just seeing how physicians in all these different settings take care of patients, how they look at situations, how you interact with patients, 
and you learn some things that you can bring to your ophthalmology practice that's really invaluable. What's the right balance? I think you'll get a lot of different opinions on that, but I was happy that we have at least three months of ophthalmology that we can tailor to what we think will work best within our internship. Mm -hmm. We were given the opportunity to have a joint program where you can have the medicine or some other program run the internship year or do an integrated internship, and we chose the integrated route it's a bit more work on our end, but what it allows us to do is to really tailor that year exactly how we would want it. And it's the opportunity to identify things like dermatology and rheumatology and infectious disease and have our residents go through outpatient neurology and neuroradiology and plastic surgery and some of these things that will really benefit them in their near future ophthalmology practice has really been fun. It takes a lot of coordination, but I think that I would love to go through that internship. Oh yeah, me too. I'm jealous. You were talking about relationships. Certainly they finished that year with relationships throughout the institution that right. they can draw on throughout residency. I've been struck by too, just the relationships of being more integrated during their first year with our faculty. Mm -hmm. So yeah. instead of having residents that you get to know for three years, you really are getting to know them over a four-year period. And for some of them, whether it's in a research interest or other an international service discussion that they have, you can start to build those relationship connections and give them opportunities or at least start discussing them earlier in their residency. So right. I, there's fruit in both from the medicine side, but also from and from their ophthalmology training perspective, but also just from an individual desires and what they like to do and how right. they see their career shaping that can start to take roots during that year. So for sure. yeah, thank you for your leadership role during that. It's been a, neat to see how that's all come together across the nation, but especially here at Mayo for us. Yeah, as, as with a lot of administrative aspects of what we do, it's fun in the planning stage, but then when you see it actually coming to fruition and, and seeing people going through these programs and curriculums, it's really fun. You have to go into it knowing that it's an iterative process and you're always going to make changes. You can never expect it to be perfect, but boy, it sure worked really well. Yeah. I have to say for both of you, as we talk about relationships throughout residency, you two are a, a special energy in our department for our training program. John Chen was uh, has had a meaningful role in our education program too, but right now you two in a shared leadership role, and Andy, you, your leadership over the years and, and vision and communication, there are so many impacts that I've seen being rather new at Mayo, now going on seven years, that I've appreciated about a residency program through you guys as leaders. But in particular, the amazing relationships you have with residents, and this is true at lots of residency programs, there's a special bond between the program directors and residents that develop. And I, I speak to me to share with us that those of us that don't have that roles, I know some, it's like a, being a parent in some ways that you develop relationships, you have sometimes corrective things, but generally they're celebratory in terms of what they're on their leadership journey. Share with just us what it's like in terms of the, the spark, the blessings, the encouragements you have in your practice about having the roles you do watching residents grow up into practicing physicians. Eric, you always ask the most heartwarming questions. <laughs> You're so sweet. Well, it's just it's inspiring to see no, these it's true. It's young true. men and women you know, grow into their field. And you guys have a special role 
and a really special relationships with them. So just speak to that for those, especially people that aren't in academic medical centers mm-hmm. that don't understand what a, maybe remember, but truly don't understand what a, a special role you guys play. And I, I see it from the spark you bring, but share just your, your takes on what fuels you to make those relationships special. Well, I can speak from the resident side of things because I was Dr. Barkmeyer's resident, and now I'm your associate program director. Andy's always been such a mentor for me, really. and you kind of inspired my interest in resident education. And I feel like you really nurtured that in me when I didn't even see it. You kind of called it out and said, I think you'd like this, and which is totally true. Right. And then you've really helped mentor me and teach me so much about the ins and outs and the things I didn't understand. There's so many financial implications and administrative implications. It's more than just teaching. I've learned so much under you, and it's been nice to transition from the resident role to now working alongside you. It sounds like a cliche, but we get more out of the relationships with our trainees than they probably get out of any one individual faculty. It's just really fun watching people grow, subtle steering of the ship at times, but by and large, just setting things up so people can thrive. It's actually very easy here because we have faculty who want to teach. They want to do research with residents. They want to coach them up um, in surgery and in clinic and just setting everyone else up for success. It's very, very appreciative of the environment we have here and just Mayo has a lot of resources to, to help make that happen. You're being humble. You're great. <laughs> You're... We both are. It's well, true. It's... it's true though. You learn so much from the, the trainees. Yeah. yeah. Let's switch gears just a tiny bit. You've taken on a new role with DRCR. You're on the executive committee. You've really kind of invested more into the retina research side of things that you've been doing recently within the past couple of years. I'm excited to hear about that and kind of your new projects and your kind of new excitement for retina research. Sure. So we go through training and some trainees have their own skill sets and research backgrounds. I was more in the camp of I was involved with a lot of different things based on what was going on with my faculty and in different programs, what was going on there. And then coming to Mayo, I know I wanted to be involved with research. I I loved everything that I participated in. So it came down to figuring out what are the resources here. And I'm still learning about new resources we have at Mayo and what those resources are and how they can answer the types of questions that we as curious um, clinicians and surgeons um, come up with on a daily basis. What's a question that I have? What's the best way to do this? Should I be worried about something here? What are the actual outcomes? And, you know, we've got the Rochester Epidemiology Project. We have access to all these different administrative databases and statistics resources and like coordinators so we can get involved with the clinical trials. So I, I got involved with clinical trials early on. I was able to ask some questions that came up in the normal course of what's going on in the world of retina. I think the Rochester Epidemiology Project will work great to answer this question, and it's a unique resource. Other people can't answer questions the way that the REP can. That's a great opportunity. And there are other questions, well, you need more power to look at the complications of these ocular treatments that we use. What are the complications of giving anti-VEGF medications? Well, you need a massive database. We I dove into some of the resources we had related to that. 
with Optum Labs and the Center of Healthcare Delivery. So you really want to become fluent in what you can do at your institution with the resources that you have, and then kind of take a keen eye to what's going on in your field and what's interesting to you. And it's just been, it's been a fun journey now. I'm getting involved with some more clinical trial administrative roles. We're really, I'm really excited about that. There's always so much going on within the field of vitreoretinal surgery that you know you can't help but get excited about where it's moving. Well, I just want to say I so appreciate what you do in vitreoretinal care here, but certainly is and, and the, your leadership roles that way. But so appreciate the opportunity to sit down and talk about your career, but also in particular the educational piece, not just for Dr. Barkmeyer, but also Dr. Tooley's roles in that, mm-hmm. and just celebrate what has evolved over time, what we're currently doing, and what the vision of for the future holds for education here. So thank you for this time to sit down and talk on this podcast uh, about an exciting topic. Yeah, it was terrific. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. It's been fun. You can find all episodes of the Mayo Clinic Ophthalmology Podcast on our website. Thank you for listening, and we definitely look forward to sharing more 